and welcome to Edible Ocean with Professor Tony Winson. I'm Edith Wilson, Tony's audio and production assistant. Today we're pleased to welcome Mike McDermott, Director of Fisheries and Seafood at OceanWise. You may recognize the OceanWise name and its famous logo. It's one of the most popular ways for consumers to figure out whether the fish on their plate is ocean-friendly or not. Mike grew up on the West Coast and developed a strong passion for the oceans and their inhabitants, which compelled him to study marine biology at the University of Victoria and the Bamfield Marine Sciences Center. From there, he accepted a position with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, where he worked on research related to the impacts of fisheries and aquaculture on the marine environment. He has over 20 years' experience in marine conservation directly related to fisheries and aquaculture. In 2013, he opened his own award-winning sustainable seafood business and was named a top 40 foodie under 40 and one of the most influential people in the Canadian food industry. Quote, the ocean-wise seafood program combines two of my greatest passions, my passion for conserving our oceans and my passion for food. My desire is to ensure that future generations have the same opportunities to marvel at the wonders of life flourishing in our oceans as I have had. On that note, let's dive in to Professor Tony's interview with Mike McDermott. My name is Mike McDermott. I am the Director of Fisheries and Seafood at OceanWise. That's great, Mike. I'm really happy to have you aboard for this uh, particular uh, podcast. I wonder if we could start uh, with you giving me just a, a brief history, if you could, of OceanWise, how it got started, and some of the main changes that it's undergone over the years. The program began, actually, the early days of the program began with our work at the Vancouver Aquarium and our partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And in 1999-2000, the Monterey Bay Aquarium launched this sustainable seafood program called Seafood Watch, which has become uh, very popular today. And the program basically, essentially what they were doing was trying to make it easier for consumers to know what was the best, most sustainable, responsibly sourced choices they could make with their seafood when they went into the to the grocery store or the restaurant. So they came out with this wallet guide. They would do all the research on the, on the different fisheries and aquaculture, and then they rated them either green as a best choice, yellow as a, some concerns, and red as an avoid. And they had these little handy guides that, that consumers went and, and brought out to the markets with them, which was a fantastic idea. We loved the idea of, of empowering consumers to vote with their wallet, so to speak, and make more conscious choices and think about the choices that they're making. Uh, because oftentimes seafood happens way out there in the middle of the ocean and it's very difficult for us to understand how a fish is being caught or what that means to the environment. Something like a carrot out of the ground is much more tangible to us than what happens out there in the middle of the ocean. So over the next few years at the aquarium, with just patrons coming in to visit uh, the aquarium, we had given out about three, three and a half million of these guides. And we, start getting an, got a, we started to get an awful lot of feedback from consumers. And what they kept saying was, we, we love the idea, love the cards, we take them out wherever we go. And, you know, but they may see, let's say, tuna on the menu. And tuna can be in every single category, depending on exactly what species it is, where it's caught, and how it's caught. So they ask all the questions of the server. And what are the chances they know the answers? And this was 
a recurring theme. It was becoming too hard to get the right answer. So then they're they have to decide whether they risk making a terrible choice for the oceans or they can't have what they wanted to order in the first place. This is what started us thinking, well, how can we take it one step further? How can we make it easier for consumers to make those choices? Because what we were seeing is people did want to support a responsible fishery and and support sustainable seafood. It just had to be easy enough for them to be able to do it. And I think just on that note, a, a funny tangential, I think Carl Safina put it the best way. He said that, he said that, you know, the famous old quote, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, give him a seafood choices card, and he becomes a pain in the butt to go to dinner with. And I thought that was a, a great anecdote of, of what was happening. Yes. And uh, so anyway, we decided, well, what if we could work with the businesses help them make better purchasing decisions, and then have them highlight those best choice options right on their menus or right in their seafood display cases. And then for us as consumers, it's a no-brainer. We know right away what is the best choice we can make, and then it's up to us whether we, we decide to do that or not. That was the idea. The hiccup was we didn't know if chefs and restaurants or grocery stores would want us coming in and telling them what to serve and not to serve. And to our surprise, it blew up. They loved it. The chefs in particular really embraced it because they're 24-7 trying to, to run a restaurant, trying to feed people. They can't also be a marine biologist and know what is the best choice and, and what choices to avoid and why. So having us come in and help them with the science and help them source alternatives was, was you know, really well received by the chefs. And in turn, the chefs are great at educating us about our food, and they're also the trendsetters. So they were great at getting the word out, teaching us about sustainable seafood and, and what it means to choose responsible seafood. So... From We launched the program in, in 2005 um, with about 13 restaurant partners. Uh, our founding chef partner was Chef Robert Clark, who just recently won the Order of Canada for his work with OceanWise. Um, and he was really instrumental in, in setting those trends, educating people, and it just went from there. We actually had, I, I was hired as the first employee of OceanWise, the first coordinator manager, and it was just me for the first few years. And I had to actually slow the program down because I couldn't, I couldn't do everything. I couldn't, I couldn't control the number of partners. So we expanded it throughout BC in 2007 and then national in 2009. Um, so now we're almost 20 years into the, the program, and I think we have about uh, 2,600 act active locations across the country. Um, and the other thing that I think was very interesting in its evolution, a lot of it was very organic. Um, it kind of it was a voluntary program, um, so people had to get in touch with us and find out about the program, get in touch with us to get on board. We didn't go out and actively solicit businesses to get on involved right and the uh, one of the interesting parts was though is the, the program was cre created kind of to be an incentive 
to be the carrot. It was it was designed to be an incentive that we hoped would flow through the seafood supply chain right down to that producer level and allow them to conduct their operations more sustainably and get value for that product. So we were trying to create a market and that would be the driver. Um, at the start, we actually contacted the supply companies and we said, hey, listen, this is what we're doing and we'd love you to get involved. Um, because we knew it would be much easier for the chefs if we had supply at hand and we could, you know, we could know where we knew where to get things. Um, plus then we could audit the supply chain as well, but, uh, the suppliers didn't call us back fast forward two years. I was getting calls every single day from supply companies. Once they saw this market, once they saw under 200 restaurants on board, they realized that, hey, this is an untapped market. If we can get on board and if we can be the first or an early adopter out of the gates, we've got this market here that we can tap into. Uh, and it just went from there. And the more and more suppliers were getting involved. And now we're working right down to that fisher and, and uh, farmer, the producer level, and seeing more producers getting on board. And as we, as we push forward with OceanWise, that's where our focus is going to start to be is is more and more working at that mostly the small scale producers you know the smaller fisheries smaller farms um, and we know that you know less than eight percent of of fisheries or aquaculture that's engaged with any kind of certification or assessment program are from that small scale producer sector, because they tend to be onerous, cumbersome, expensive, uh, and and the small scale fisheries just can't afford to to play in that in that genre. So that's that's kind of the focus of our future work. That's a really nice summary of your work and the organization's uh, what it's accomplished. But I'm just wondering if you could, in your view, what what are some of the the main achievements that OceanWise has had? Would you say could you could you just sort of boil it down to a few? I think first and foremost is raising consumer awareness. So really, OceanWise was designed to get people thinking about and talking about seafood mm. and what it means, where it comes from. At that point in time, there was I mean chefs and everybody, the the retailers, grocery stores, what what have you, had been talking about organic and fair trade. For decades at that point but nothing with seafood nobody was talking about seafood and nobody was paying attention to what was happening out there our driver for this was that we saw overfishing and poor fishing and farming practices as the number one threat facing our oceans and that was our driver and so i think there's two ways you can tackle that issue you can either lobby the government for policy reforms and change, uh, which tends to be very slow and expensive. Or you can go to the other side and try and engage consumers and empower them to make better decisions. And we saw that as the much faster route to success. So, I mean, consumers can change very quickly uh, if provided the information. And we thought people wanted the information. So that's where it started. I think, I think in very short order, OceanWise became this word that was synonymous with sustainability. 
uh, with sustainable seafood. In fact, I, I love it when people come in now and, and for the past nine years, I owned a little sustainable seafood restaurant and market. And I used to love it when people came in and said, is this ocean wise? They don't say, is this sustainable? How is this caught or fish? They ask, is this ocean wise? So that brand awareness and recognition was crucial to the success of the program. And I credit most of that on the backs of the chefs. Uh, we're a very foodie culture and they did a great job of getting that out. So I think that was a huge success. The other thing that I think is a huge success with the program is that driver through the supply chain. So in the engagement from all levels of the supply chain was the ultimate goal because ultimately what we're doing is we're, we're looking for change on the water, which is very, very hard to measure um, from, a, from a programmatic perspective. But that change on the, that driver through the supply chain right down to the producer level is essential. And, and I think OceanWise, the OceanWise program has been very, very successful in Canada in activating that driver through the supply chain. Uh, and I think that's been another key success of the program. Yeah, that's really, really interesting to know that. I just just like to look at the other side of the coin for a minute, if we could. And what would you say have been some of the main issues or, or even setbacks um, that OceanWise has, has had to contend with over the years? Well, with seafood and, and that uh, talking about that supply chain, seafood is an incredibly complex, the most complex of all of our food systems. Uh, you know, where most of our land-based food systems, they may change hands two or three times. Seafood changes hands on average five to six times. So it's incredibly complex, and that means it's fraught with some challenges. And I think part of the challenges are poor labeling laws uh, in Canada mean that it's not required to have the Latin name of the species follow that through the supply chain. And we all know the challenges of common names. Common names vary by what geographic region you're in. Something like red snapper can be in Canada, can be one of 20 odd different species. Most not even closely related to a true snapper, most rockfish. And so there's huge challenges. I think that the labeling, poor labeling laws create challenges. And I think that complex system creates huge challenges. And these are logistic challenges to being able to, I mean, full traceability is very, very difficult to achieve. But just being able to verify through that supply chain gets very, very challenging. Um, so I think that's one of the challenges that all seafood faces and all seafood programs face is that traceability through the system. Every time it changes hands, you need to be able to verify it. And further complicating the matter are the fact that a lot of this big seafood buying markets are mixed markets. So, for example, like mahi-mahi in, in, in the Hawaii and around the Hawaiian Islands, it's all caught hook and line should be a great sustainable option uh, little impact on the environment they're very resilient to fishing pressure however 
in the rest of the South Pacific area, a lot of them are fished with uh, pelagic longlines, which incur huge amounts of bycatch and can be one of the worst ways to catch fish and the most unsustainable. When these fish come into the Hawaiian market to be bought by vendors, they lump them all. You, it is impossible to discern which one was the hook and line caught one and which was the long line caught one. So this creates a full challenge through. So we may recommend the hook and line one from the Hawaiian, uh, from the Hawaiian fishery, but we don't recommend the others. But now, because it's all lumped, you can't possibly know once it gets to the end user, once it gets into the market, once it gets to the distributor. And that and that's a huge challenge to um, you know, our, the, our partner businesses and, and a huge challenge for us in verifying that seafood. Um, I think the other thing that's always a challenge whenever you're doing any kind of labeling logo, especially once it gets to be the value that or the perceived value that OceanWise brand is in the marketplace, is you start getting people misusing the logo. Some, and in fact, a lot, are usually um, not malicious. It was a mistake. It was a misunderstanding. Misrep- but, but some are malicious misrepresentations. They're using, they want that brand, they want that logo because it sells fish. Hmm. Uh, and so that, I think, was... Uh, is a is a challenge with the logo as well we're not equipped to be able to check on every business every single day um we would need thousands of staff but i think that really at the end of the day we have to decide what is the what is what are we trying to accomplish and i think the real thing that we're trying to accomplish is that awareness raising and the um and and ensuring that people are being responsible when they're making choices with their seafood and using that driver. Uh, And I think that's really great. I mean, the other thing that we've seen that's a really positive is we've seen a really great transition from uh, what was offered even 20 years ago to what's offered today. It's amazing the changes that have taken place on menus. 20 years ago, Chilean sea bass everywhere, every menu. Now, you never see it. Now it's being replaced by a local Canadian sablefish or black cod. And it's a great sustainable alternative to a fish with very, very similar uh, characteristics. So it worked very well. But finding those local and more responsibly fished or farmed uh, choices is being a huge. We're seeing and seeing that shift in people's purchasing in Canada. I think there's a huge win as well. The interview with Mike was conducted in two parts. After saying hello again, Tony picks up where they left off and asks Mike to expand on the traceability challenges that OceanWise faces, since at the end of the last quote, he talked about the misuse of the label. So we're going to dive right into the second part of the interview with Mike McDermott. Uh, when we had you uh, last time, you had talked about some of the issues that uh, OceanWise is has been facing in the past, and you mentioned um, traceability. Uh, you mentioned, in particular, misuse of the label as a as a problem um, that you've encountered in the past. I'm just wondering if you could reflect on is there, if there's any other issues or or uh, 
matters that uh, you you see being an issue in in going for, going forward with OceanWise. Um, you you talked about issues of traceability. Would you care to uh, just elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know one of the challenges that we've seen in Canada is because of the poor regulations surrounding uh, labeling of seafood products in Canada, we've had a real challenge being able to identify exactly what things are. And, and this has led to a lot of misuse and mislabeling of products. And I think that it's challenged for us moving forward. We need to make sure that we have a, a better labeling Hey, it's me again, your favorite audio assistant. So there's a little bit here where Mike dropped out, but he's talking about traceability in seafood and how we need a better labeling system, I think is the word that's missing. I'll let him finish his thought here. From one country, but it's processed and packaged in another country, and it all of a sudden becomes product of the country where the final packaging was done. And I think that's a challenge internationally as well. Uh, because it leads to confusion over exactly what species we're talking about. And, of course, that leads directly to what fishery we're talking about, what management practices are in place for that fishery, what environmental standards and regulations are in place for that fishery. And it leads directly to our assessment of whether that is a good sustainable option or not. The other challenge around this is obviously uh, seafood is very, very complex, Uh, changing hands on average five or six times as opposed to land-based proteins, which change hands maybe two or three times on average. Every time this is changing hands within the chain, it becomes an opportunity to not even necessarily on purpose misrepresent the, the product, but by accident misrepresent the product even. Uh, And this becomes a real challenge in trying to track that through the system and ensure what product we're exactly talking about and what species and from what fishery or aquaculture facility. And so it obviously leads to the other conversation, which is the traceability. And we have had many conversations as well with government, uh, other NGOs and, and academics surrounding this idea of how do we accomplish traceability because it can get as i mentioned this this is an incredibly complex uh, food system changing hands a lot of times how do we ensure that it is the product that it was all the way down the line Uh, and it it's going to take some radical changes and i think the changes need to start or would be most effective at the level of government requirements Um, one because i think the changes are going to be very expensive to put in full traceability and i don't think that uh, the individual components of the industry or nonprofit sector uh, i don't think that's it has the ability or the funding resources to be able to accomplish a full traceability. So I think we do look to the government and, and in our part, we help advise on these policies and this change. And, and we hope that someday, uh, you know, in the near future, we can get to a place where we have a much better accountability at least, or chain of custody or, or a full traceability within the Canadian food system for seafood. 
I'm just wondering, as you're mentioning this, do, do you see any particular um, stakeholders or whatever in the supply chain as, as pushing back against uh, this because um, it's going to cost them more or cause them problems or anything, you know, whether it's retail or the seafood suppliers? Or, do you see any uh, likelihood of that happening? No. In fact, quite the opposite. I think I'm, I'm more surprised by the appetite for traceability within the supply chain. And many of the players, whether it's uh, the retail sector, the food service hospitality, or whether it's the supply and distribution sector itself, all are very keen on having traceability. I think part of it is trying to figure out how it's done. But when you look at the larger buyers and, and suppliers, they already do have, at least for the most part, accountability for those products through their line. And they can at least, at the minimum, trace it one up, one down, if not a full custody traceability through their system. And I think more and more of them understand, I think they already know that it's just good business practice. Being able to trace that product through allows them to ensure quality all the way through. It allows them to ensure better products or to avoid products where they're not. It also ensures that they themselves are not the victims of misrepresentation of seafood so that they're not paying um, uh, a halibut price for not a halibut, you know, yeah. that that type of thing. And I think more and more they they see this as also a differentiation point. Having that traceability through there differentiate, can dis- differentiate them from their competitors as well. So I think there's a large appetite for it. I think the cost is high, and I think the technology is catching up. Uh, to the point where we can see what we need to implement for full traceability. But I I think it takes a complete effort of understanding. The only trepidation I would see is that uh, these businesses spend a lot of money on having this traceability of the product, and then uh, the the consumer or the, the nonprofits or academia or government or whatever says, well, that's not good enough. You know, you need this. Uh, so they've gone down the wrong path, essentially. But no, I see it as a as a large thing. Now, something that's come up m- more in more recently that's kind of on interest on this, and there's been conversations back and forth on this, is there is some concern within the industry and within that supply chain that due to the pressures that higher interest rates that are putting on and and especially put on commodity items like seafood that those challenges may trump our efforts in something like traceability for and for example may delay our progress on them people may put traceability on the back burner for a while just to get through this this challenge of trying to offer things that are getting more and more expensive at a still reasonable price for the yeah. for the restaurant or hospitality or food service industry. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I th- think you're, we see that happen in, in other sectors where uh, we were making progress and, and now we're not because of price increases and uh, it's sort of undercutting efforts to, you know, go in a more sustainable direction. 
Uh, well, yeah, thanks for that. There's some very interesting insights there. Um, just maybe to take a, a going in a little bit of a different direction now, uh, it appears to, uh, to me at least that OceanWise is um, broadening its programs of late and it's going in some different directions. I'm just wondering if you could give, me, uh, give us some idea of uh, some of the changes that have been made and where you're going in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, I, I think it's really exciting. And I'm, it's, it's the reason I'm excited to be back with OceanWise after all these years. Um, when we, and, and maybe I have to talk about it from uh, the perspective of our theory of change. And when we designed the program initially, we saw that the opportunities to uh, affect positive change within the fishing and aquaculture industries was really at the heart of engaging and empowering the consumers. So that's where we began. We wanted to raise awareness with consumers, empower them to make better choices with their seafood. And we saw that as a driver through the industry. And, and fishing is one of those industries that, and, and I guess a lot of commodities are, where it's very bottom-up driven. You know, what consumers demand is what the fishers will go out and catch. If nobody's willing to buy it, they're not going to waste the time and effort to go catch it. Now, government subsidies are an interesting challenge on that. But uh, that aside, so that's where we started, is with that raising awareness, trying to make it easier for consumers to know exactly what is the best um, seafood purchases they should be making. And that's where, to make it easier for consumers, we started engaging with the businesses themselves, the consumer-facing businesses, the restaurants, uh, the retailers, grocery stores, that type of thing, helping them make better purchasing decisions and then highlighting those best-choice, ocean-wise recommended options right on their menus or in their seafood display cases. And again, it was all just to make it easier for consumers. Right. Now, as more and more, we partnered with more and more businesses it led to our second pillar of our kind of our theory of change, and that was creating a market for sustainable seafood. We knew that we needed to create a strong market that would, that would again, have this trickle-down effect through the industry, right to the producer level, and incentivize change. So as we got partnered with more and more businesses across the country, and now we're at 2,600-some-odd locations across the country, we now have a sizable market that's that's driving change through the industry. Mm-hmm. In order to help those businesses, it was important to get the supply chain on board so that we could work with them, understand what are the OceanWise recommended options so they could offer easy and, and better solutions and alternatives to these partner businesses. So that's happened over the past number of years as well. Where we're at now is that final pillar is that last step of the evolution of this process. And why I'm excited about this is because where we were 20 years ago in our creation and thinking of this, uh, and unfortunately it's taken 20 years, but we've now gotten to the place where we've got those drivers and that incentive in place, and we can now start to work right at the, the producer level and work to to engage with them and 
and create meaningful and lasting change on the water. And that's obviously the ultimate goal. So our, our direction now and our focus, even though we're going to continue to, to create public awareness and consumer awareness and drive that, we're going to continue to engage and work with our business partners and engage the supply chain all the way through. Um, but we are now really focused on engaging with small-scale producers in particular. Um, it, we're not, it, there's, there's so much work to be done within this arena of sustainable seafood uh, globally that there's no sense in different programs just continually recreating the wheel. I think what we have to do is look at where uh, collectively there are spaces where our organization might be better to, suited to fill and there are spaces that don't need to be filled because there are people doing it. Uh, and for you know certification, we don't need to replicate that wheel. That's been well covered by MSC and ASC, I think is the gold standard in that uh, and, and really successful at doing that. Where we haven't been very successful is in the small scale producers. And I was just on a call this morning, actually, with a, a bunch of various different groups that we work with internationally. Um, I had originally heard from FAO numbers that over 50% of global seafood production is produced at the small-scale producer level. Mm -hmm. That number came up again today, and with wild capture fisheries, the the, it's been suggested that that number could be as high as 90% of all the wild scale or wild capture fisheries production globally. 90% is coming from small scale fisheries. Um, and this, and, and I guess to give you the full picture, only, uh, well, less than 8% of global small scale fisheries are engaged in any sort of sustainability um, program or plan or, or at all. And a lot of it is because it's been, a lot of it's too cumbersome, too expensive to engage with, right. or it's not available in their area, or there's no incentive, no driver for it. So this is where we really want to focus and where we really think that this is our ability to add to this global change that we're trying to drive is we can engage at the small scale producer level, um, work with them and work with that small scale producer community to start engaging the full system where we have consumer awareness, we have businesses supporting this fishery, we have a driver through the supply chain uh, right to that water level, we can engage with them to work on improvements to those fisheries so that they can reach an ocean-wise recommended bar, for example, and and really have the whole producer community supported in this. Whether that, that stays focused in the community, that product, for food security reasons, which I think is good. Uh, some of it may come international to different markets, but uh, again, I think we can we can recreate this model in many different areas and really start driving and engaging and uh, engaging and driving change at the water level, and that's our focus now. Well, uh, yeah, that's, um, I'm a bit surprised. I must say, you you were saying that the newer numbers suggesting maybe 
eighty or ninety percent of the wild caught fish or seafood is is uh, from small scale producers. But you know, you think of the massive Chinese offshore fishing fleet, the 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 Thai tuna fishing fleet, the Japanese, the Russians, the Americans. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard it's hard to believe. Presumably small scale is not included in those fishing fleets i I assume right yeah exactly and and now there's a couple of things that factor into this i would say that this is of reported seafood so we have to remember that a lot of these large uh, international water fishing fleets um, have dubious reputations and a lot of it is iuu or uh, legal unreported and and uh undocumented Thank you. Um, and that's a, that's a huge challenge. And those, but that catch wouldn't be reported. Mm-hmm. So take that with a grain of salt. The other thing is I, I can't actually, ver- I don't have a citation for that number. It just came up in conversation today. Uh, like I say, FAO number is, uh, is over 50% is from small scale fisheries. So, but either way, it's an incredibly large amount and, and because of the low level of engagement with these fisheries, um, and, and part of that is to blame for us with it doing this work, is that with such limited resources, we focus our efforts on the big change drivers. And, and we, we don't have time for the little producers because we don't think we're going to have a big enough impact. Mm. But I think we're starting to realize that that's just not true. I'd like to to close or wrap things up a bit with a, a big question. I think this year has been a year of massive impacts of, of uh, climate change. Climate change scientists are finding that the changes in terrestrial and marine environments are taking place at a, at a pace that they had not imagined, you know, even five years ago. So I'd be interested in your view, you know, given your expertise and background, and what do you think are the the biggest threats to the marine environment? I still see poor fishing and farming practices and overfishing as as being one of the most immediate threats to facing our oceans, and the most direct way that we impact the oceans. I mean, these are really the last true wild hunts on the planet, and we don't have very good track record with wild hunts. So we, and, but I also think on a positive side of that is it's, it's the one that we have the most ability to influence change on. So I'm very optimistic with our work with, excuse me, with fisheries and seafood, I think that we do now understand it much better. We have the technology in places to help make improvements, uh, especially, well, in both aquaculture and wild capture fisheries. And I think we can really start to um, force a lot of change in that area. So that brings us to what is becoming the biggest issue in the oceans, and that's uh, climate change. And I think we're starting to see what potential climate change impacts have, and they're massive. And we're seeing massive uh, uh, range shifts in species where they're they're shifting their ranges poleward, uh, which is causing all kinds of challenges to food security, uh, to fisheries, 
to aquaculture facilities because of this this warming climate trends, the changing ocean currents, uh, and species shifting their rain shifts. I think that's probably one of the most interesting drivers. We've been looking at uh, Pacific salmon, for example, and and one area that we've been working in uh, in uh, the Yukon, the Yukon River, we've seen over just the short period of the last five years, the salmon aren't returning. They're disappearing. We don't know where they're going. Now, there are a lot of communities that rely on those salmon returning right, year over right. year. In some other work that we're doing up in the Arctic, in Nunavut, we're actually seeing salmon, Pacific salmon and Atlantic salmon, but coming from different sides, but we're seeing Pacific salmon arriving where they've never been seen before. So this becomes a serious issue of not only in how it's going to impact the rest of the system, but how it's going to impact people and food security and economic drivers, industry, that type of thing as well. Uh, so I certainly see climate change as becoming uh, the more and more immediate threat. But in my mind, I think it makes sustainable practices in seafood all that much more important uh, as a driver of, of economic benefit, socioeconomic benefit, and of course, food security for many of the communities that have historically relied on them. And I think it is more and more important that we are sourcing from truly sustainable, environmentally sustainable aquaculture and wild capture fisheries to ensure that we have that stability going forward in the face of a, of a changing climate. Well, thank you very much, Mike. And, and that's a great example with the salmon, you know, just giving us some concrete example of uh, a specific impact as species start to move uh, in response to uh, warming oceans. Well, listen, it's been a really fascinating um, discussion with you. I want to thank you very much for uh, spending a bit of time with us, and I hope uh, at some point in the future we can come back and, and further the discussion a bit more. Absolutely. Always happy to have this discussion, and the more people talking and thinking about this, the more great ideas will come to fruition and, and we'll be able to move forward. I may just add, if I can, Certainly. One, last, one last piece on that climate change, only because it's, it's current, and it was uh, from Dr. William Chung's lab at UBC, and you may have seen this, but I, I thought it was a very novel way to, to look at species shifting their ranges in the face of a changing climate. And what he and his student did was they looked at historic records of menus in Vancouver and what seafood items were on those menus historically, some of them a hundred years ago or more, compared with what's on the menus today. And then they looked at the species range and tried to see, well, are there examples there? Can we use this as a novel approach to seeing that species have shifted their ranges over time because much of what appears on our menus, uh, not always, of course, because we're now into a global food system, but much of what appears on our menus is what's in the waters around us. 
these new novel ways of approaching this uh, give us a really good idea of how our environment is changing and what that means. And one of the great examples that, of course, happened there and, and was highlighted there was the idea of Humboldt squid. So even as, as short as 30 years ago, Humboldt squid didn't exist off the coast of British Columbia, but they've extended their range further northward and now are common. And we're also seeing it come on menus more and more commonly as well. So interesting dynamics there. And, and, a, and like I say, a very novel approach to looking at the challenge of, of shifting climates with seafood. Yeah, really, really fascinating. Yeah, thanks for that insight, Mike. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Edible Ocean Podcast. Tony Winson hosted and did the recruiting for the interviews. I'm Edith Wilson, Tony's audio and production assistant. I also manage our Instagram. Follow us at edibleocean underscore podcast. Follow Professor Tony on Twitter at Industrial Diet. This podcast was made with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada.